please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 13. And as you're turning there, after taking that break last week from this uh, regular series for our celebration of Christ's resurrection uh, last Sunday, let's, let's get our minds back into the groove of where we are here in the Gospel of Matthew, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Jesus opened this message at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, and he defined there what Christians are and, and what Christians are increasingly becoming and what are called the Beatitudes. And Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, those who are meek, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and so on. We learned that Christians are also to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. It turns out Christians are not called to simply isolate themselves, spend the bulk of their time uh, commenting on how terrible the world is these days, or, or posting snarky, hateful comments or memes on Facebook. We aren't even called to stay in our homes and in our favorite reading chairs just to read our Bibles and pray 24-7. But instead, to live in the world, though not of it, being hearers and then doers of the word. And in doing so, having a preservative and an illuminating effect as we live like Christ in this world and point people to him. Jesus addressed several areas as well of misinterpretation of the Old Testament scriptures where the scribes and the Pharisees, they were reading their Bibles looking for permission from God to be selfish, angry, lustful, adulterous, to get revenge. When all along God God was calling his people to pursue love. Reconciliation, faithfulness, ought to be true to their word, among many other things. Christ also taught in the Sermon on the Mount that when we do good things like uh, giving, praying, fasting, that those things are not uh, tools that God has given us to draw interest from others for ourselves, the praise of man, but instead ways that he has given us in his love to love him and pursue him and to love other people. We also learn that when we love God first and seek his kingdom first instead of our own or any other kingdom on this earth for that matter, it's a lot harder to get anxious about the things in this life. You can say it this way, it's a lot harder to get anxious about the things in this life when we care more about that which is eternal. And in the Sermon on the Mount, we learn that it's much better to be humble, that when we are willing to confess our own sin and pursue our own growth in Christ's likeness, that we are then better equipped and rightfully, rightly, uh, lovingly motivated to help others grow as well. And that when we ask God for this kind of growth in ourselves, when we ask God for the good things that he's promised to us in his word, that our loving Father will happily give to us what is good according to his will. All this teaching was summed up, I think, by the golden rule, which is really the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. Or as it was stated in the golden rule, whatever you wish others do to you, do also to them. Now, as we come to chapter 7, verse 13, Jesus begins to bring this sermon to a close. And it's time for a decision. It's time for a decision on the part of the listener. 
or the reader. And we're going to be given two options for that decision in the next few passage. Options of, of two gates, two ways, two trees, two foundations, or two builders. And the one who hears these teachings from Jesus must come to a conclusion. They must come to a decision. Am I going to enter the narrow gate or the wide? Am I a bearer of good fruit or diseased? Am I going to build my house upon the rock or am I going to build it on the sand? And it's so important for all of us to understand, for anyone who would ever read this Sermon on the Mount, a decision must be made and a decision will be made by all. And that decision will result in actions. And over time, a changing lifestyle and eternal consequences, good and bad. So verse 13, Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Few. The first thing to address here is this very first word of the very first sentence, the word enter. It's written in the imperative tense, meaning that when Christ said enter, he is saying it as a command. This is a command. So as we read this passage today, it's right for us to hear these words and know people are either going to obey this instruction or people are going to disobey. To not enter is to disobey. To not enter the narrow gate is to enter the wide gate. And, and we can do a hundred Bible studies on the Sermon on the Mount. You can listen back to these sermons over and over. You can memorize the verses. You can paint them on your walls at home. But if you are not entering, if you are not putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, you have not entered. And if you're not walking in this way, you are disobeying this command. Again, Christ is calling us to a decision. Uh, We can see in this passage, too, there is only one gate that is to be entered and only one way that leads to life. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is only one correct way, and therefore the way is narrow because the only way is God's way. And even if we try to make other ways that 
we might put a label of God or the label of Christianity or, or the, the rules that we might des- desire to put on there to, to, you know, the ones that we can follow well, right? That we can do that and say, oh man, we're, we're being Christians. We're going on this way. If it's not God's way, it is not the way. It's his way. There are countless other gates or ways that man makes up. Some think they're going to go to heaven because they're good enough. They're righteous enough. You know, at least I'm better than that guy. Better than other people. Some trust in their religious practices, their recitations of prayers, their financial contributions. Some trust in their family tradition and heritage, just as so many of the Jews were doing during Jesus' earthly ministry. Most people in the world trust, though, in some other religion altogether. Different gods, false gods, different lifestyles, different ends. And of course, there are those who trust in nothing but what we can see and and feel right in front of us. That there is nothing else. There is no eternal life. There's just death. And it's all over. Please understand, no matter what other way, no matter what other goals... No matter what other purposes, other philosophies, or ends that mankind can come up with and believe in. There's something in common with all of them. Whether a person's a Buddhist, or a Hindu, or a Muslim, or a pantheist, or an atheist, or anything else outside of the gospel. All of these various ideas and religions are the inventions of man. And all of them are not the narrow gate. None of them are the narrow way. Man's own inventions, man's own way of looking at life, uh, even though you know not everybody who follows those invented them, but they, they know they are ways that they can uh, benefit themselves in the here and now, maybe to get their family's approval or to get their society's approval, or, or it's just, it's not obeying someone outside of me, so I'm going to do my own thing no matter what it is. This is the wide gate. That is the broad way. And many enter it. Including many who call themselves Christian. Now, certainly one of the pushbacks we might get in this conversation is the idea that we are being unloving by telling people that what they're basing their life upon is wrong. I mean, we can disagree with each other about stuff, but what people are based on their light, that's untouchable, right? We, we might think we're unloving or be accused of being unloving if we would tell somebody that what they're doing is wrong. But I would argue the exact opposite. If I know someone is going to hell because they're rejecting Christ and entering that wide gate, walking along that broad way by following their own self-made philosophy... And when I am given the opportunity to share Christ, I refuse to say anything because I'm scared they'll be upset. I would argue that in those moments, I'm being the opposite of loving. I'm only protecting myself and I'm withholding information from them that would save them eternally if they would believe. One of the wrong philosophies that the world, and, and if we're honest, people in the church too have adopted One of the beliefs of the wide gate and the broad path is that idea that loving equals affirmation. 
that the way we love people is just to affirm them in whatever they're doing. But we, we know this. If a child is about to drink the Drano under the bathroom sink, you don't affirm them and tell them how much potential they have. Look at you go! You don't do that. They won't have any potential if you let them drink the Drano and they die. You love them by warning them. And if it's a child, they might cry when you stop them, right? If it's a child and they're not listening to you, you even maybe like knock that bottle out of their hands before it should get tipped and, and then they go, oh, you know, the child is just overwhelmed by this moment and the bottle looked so cool and what, what just happened? And they might cry. Are you going to say, well, well, you know, I just hate seeing kids cry. It's just so hard to see them cry. Their tears rolling down those cute pudgy cheeks. It just breaks my heart. So I just, I just couldn't say anything. No. No, we wouldn't do that. In that moment, you are willing to risk not being the favorite uncle or the favorite aunt for the next couple of days or months if it means you still have a niece or a nephew. Love is giving of myself sacrificially for the benefit of another. Aren't you glad Christ did that while we were sinners? And so in that same way, when when people are in danger, we love them by pointing them to what is right and good, speaking the truth in love for their benefit. And when they're headed towards what is right and good, we affirm that. We affirm that. We rejoice with them. It's also really helpful to know the meaning of the words easy and hard in these verses. Easy and hard. And Jesus says that the gate that is wide leads to a way that is, quote, easy. And that the narrow gate leads to a path that is, quote, hard. That might make us think of a, a passage like Psalm 73 uh, upon first listening where, where Asaph looks at his life and he's following God, he's obeying God, and then he, he looks at the lives of others who seem to be rejecting him. And, and he certainly would have said that those, those people had entered through the wide gate, but they looked all fat and happy, he said. Look at them, they're having the greatest life. And there he was, he's suffering He's having to tough this out, wondering how this hardship in his life is even fair until he went into the sanctuary of God and discerned their end. So because these passages would at least, like I said, at first glance, they seem to line up that way. It'd be easy for us to read it that way and then just to think that's what it means and to move right along. I could even go on a tangent about how somehow we can have this aversion to hard things. You know, we're presented with these two possibilities of things that we could do in any given day, and one of them looks hard, and one of them looks easy, and whoop, without even thinking twice, right? We could do that. I could go on a tangent like that, but I won't. I won't do that. But think about this even. What, What if Asaph compared his life to the life of an American Christian in the 20th or 21st century and looks at how our life looks compared to what his did. There might be a Psalm 73 and a half if that was the case until he went into the sanctuary of God and and remembered that it wasn't the material goods 
or the apparent ease of this life that gives us our joy and our rest, but only the Lord. There are Christians who appear to live easy lives now compared to others. So we need to be careful. This this can't just be worldly living equals easy and godly living equals hard. Uh, That wouldn't be a right understanding. Uh, Think of this. What about the person who has entered the wide gate uh, doing religious things, the lack thereof, and they're miserable. Their life is hard. Are there people in this world who are not believers in Christ who are living hard lives? Well, yeah, we know that. Uh, Maybe they're sacrificing everything they have to a false god and living in abject poverty. Or they're trying to please Jesus their own way and and doing so much good that they that they maybe hopefully would just be considered worthy of heaven, having less impurities to burn away in purgatory before they could be fit for heaven. And because they just never feel pure enough, it just eats at them, and they they even begin to hate God, just like Martin Luther did before his conversion. These people have entered the wide gate, and life isn't easy for them. So what gives? Was Jesus wrong? Did this illustration break down? And the answer is no. No. Jesus wasn't wrong. The illustration did not break down. But we do need to work on our understanding of these words. Easy and hard. So this is what's happening here. Uh, Jesus is using synonymous words as he compares the, the gates, the narrow and wide gate, with their respective ways or their paths, which in the ESV we saw translated as hard and easy. Uh, the Greek words describing these ways are being used synonymously to be compared with the gates. And the word for uh, the way that follows the wide gate, that word means broad spacious. It's easy because there's lots of room. Lots of elbow room. The gate is wide and the way is spacious that leads to destruction. Now people come by it easy because we're prone to do things our own way. Whatever way that might be, it's our way. But the life lived on that broad and spacious path may or may not be an easy life compared to any other person. There's just plenty of room for everyone to try to do their own thing. You see? In contrast, the narrow gate leads to a way that is constricted, confined. The word translated as hard means that it's constricted or confined. This narrow gate leads to a constricted way. As opposed to doing life however you see fit, which which we all just naturally would do, as opposed to doing life however you see fit, you pass through that narrow, singular gate who is Jesus Christ our Savior, and then you begin to walk on this path, living life with Jesus as Lord. Lord. And being under the lordship of someone else. For most people in the world, that feels a little too constricting. Few people are going to go that way. The idea, the idea of seeing myself as a sinner, 
uh, which doesn't feel like much of an affirmation. Uh, The idea of seeing myself as a sinner, confessing my sin against a holy, righteous, and just God, counting on Him, trusting in Him to save me, to secure my redemption, to grant me life, to have to trust in Christ entirely because I can do nothing to earn a piece of this salvation. And then, on the heels of that uh, acceptance and repentance, to, to then live my life under the authority of someone outside of myself. To submit. To submit to God. Even when I may initially disagree with what he says. Sometimes our favorite jobs are the ones where our boss always agrees with us. It's easy to submit when we agree with what we're being told to do, isn't it? But to be willing to be corrected, trained in righteousness, to desire to be pleasing to him, to look at my life, even down to the details of eating and drinking, all to the glory of God. That sounds too restricting, too confining. I might start feeling all claustrophobic in there, in that life. That's just way too hard. Does that make sense? That's what Jesus is saying here. So there is a gate that is wide, which opens up to a pathway that is roomy and spacious, and many go that way. If it was up for a vote, the wide gate, the spacious path, it would win every time. And that pathway leads to hell. And then there is a narrow gate. The gate that one enters by repenting of their sin, putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for their forgiveness. And after entering through that gate, there is a pathway that is to be walked under the lordship of our loving God. This path could be considered strict compared to what the world has to offer. You know, we, we like to make strictnesses, right? If we are being legalistic and, and we think I'm going to be good because I'm doing all of these rules that we've made up, we can be strict in a wide gate and wide path kind of a way because of it's our, our own devising. But then there's a strictness that is just purely obedience to Christ. That is not a legalism. And that pathway is a good one. And it's not just a good one. It is the only good one. And it leads to eternal life. (laughs) It leads to rest. It leads to peace. It leads to victory and joy. And it might be startling uh, for some of us to hear that the descriptive word for those entering the wide gate, the spacious path, is many. And that the amount of people who enter by the narrow gate and and walk the path which is under the lordship of Christ is considered by Jesus himself to be few. Few. And we got to be careful there. You say, ah, I'm one of the few. The few, the proud. (laughs) No. This is by the grace of God. For up to us, we'd be running through that wide gate. God has been gracious. I think it's also startling that right after teaching us this, Jesus also says there are those who claim to be Christians who are not Christians at all. 
people who claim to have entered through the narrow gate, who claim to be walking on this narrow path, who in reality have entered through the wide gate and doing things their own way and headed for destruction. Doing all of this under the banner of Christendom. Some of them having convinced themselves that they are followers of Jesus. And they're not. I'm going to go ahead and read from verse 15 through uh, verse 23 uh, now, and then we'll look back through and see what we can pick up from these verses. So verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. So there's appearance there. But inwardly are ravenous wolves. You know, wolves like to eat sheep, right? Finding the sheep and consuming taking from them whatever you can get. It says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit. The diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will Recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, how many does it say? Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? What are those many doing even in that moment? They're judging Christ to be wrong. And then I will declare to them, he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, I think I'm going to get more in depth with these verses next week. uh, But we can learn a couple of things this week from these uh, verses that will help us tie this passage into the context of what we saw in verses 13 and 14. So that's what I want to do this week is grab out of these verses what we can apply to what we learn from uh, the wide and narrow gates and those paths, okay? So I think it's interesting, interesting that on either side of this illustration of the healthy trees and the diseased trees, uh, we have two different kinds of false believers. So like think in your Bible, there's the false prophet, there's the false believers in the middle, right? There's this illustration of the good trees and the diseased trees. And there are contrasts. There are things about those false prophets. There's things about those false believers. But one thing that's true of both of them is that this illustration of the trees and the fruit, it applies to both. Okay? Either way, both of these people, the false prophets, the false believers, all will look great at first. Even trees that bear bad fruit can bud in the spring and look promising. But before too long, the tree is going to bear the fruit that it's going to bear. And I, I do think it's so encouraging. Jesus tells us this twice in verse 16 and 20. You, uh, true and growing Christians, you will recognize them by their fruits. And sometimes we wish we'd recognize them before or earlier, but you will recognize them. As we grow, as we continue to learn and understand God's word and, and grow in running all of the things that we see and hear through the grid of the scriptures, 
we can grow in seeing and identifying what is a good fruit and what is a diseased fruit. And therefore the trees as well. We can grow in knowing and understanding true and genuine Christianity and true and genuine biblical teaching and preaching and discerning that which is counterfeit. Now, I'm encouraging this. When, when people are training to learn to identify counterfeit money, they are not trained simply on the tactics and tricks of the counterfeiters. The people who know how to identify counterfeit money, they are experts in knowing what real money looks like. What it's made of, how it's produced, all of its components, its, its watermarks, its colors, all of that stuff. And so you don't need to go out and become an expert in all the false teachers out there. And we'll look at some of this uh, some more next week. But for us as followers of Christ, to grow in being able to spot counterfeit teachers, maybe even counterfeit believers, so that we can lovingly share the truth with them and point them to Christ, what we need to continue to grow in is our expertise in the truth. When we know the word of God well, when we grow as experts in the truth, we'll be able to identify the fiction that's out there better. And even the fiction that might still remain in our own hearts, our own thinking, as God graciously renews our own minds and conforms us to the image of Christ. As, as we uh, start to finish up today, and, and by that I mean moving towards the end, but there's still three more pages of notes, okay? Kind of like the Apostle Paul says, finally, and then there's three more chapters, right? Um, but I, I want to ask you to consider this command from Christ as he has begun to wrap up this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Have you entered the narrow gate? There is only one way. God's way. Going to church your whole life doesn't make you saved. Serving in children's ministries, singing up on the platform, playing an instrument, giving lots of money, none of those things are what make us fit for heaven. In Romans 10, the Apostle Paul refers to the Jews who had sought uh, to keep the law in order to achieve their own righteousness. And he says of them that they did not submit to God's righteousness. That means that all those quote-unquote good works that they were doing, all of that effort they were putting in, all the money they give, the prayers they prayed, the fasting they fasted, all of that religious activity done to achieve their own righteousness were in truth rebellious actions, sinful works. Kind of blows your mind to think about it, doesn't it? All the things that I would do to earn my own salvation is actually sinful. It's not just good stuff that falls flat. It's sinful. In their effort to get into heaven, they were just piling on more sin. And because the Bible says this is the case, I think it would be wrong for me not to ask this, to present this to you today. There may be some of you here today who have been going to this church since it was on Broadway and Fancher, or, or since you were a little child in the nursery, or going to whatever church you grew up in, 
And you think that because you go to a good church, because you go to a church that strives to teach the Bible, uh, because you don't miss too many services, you, you like the right kind of music, you, ha- you haven't gotten caught up in drugs or alcohol, you haven't slept with anyone outside of marriage, you got baptized when the preacher offered the chance, you've been eating those crackers and drinking grape juice in a solemn way. There may be someone or some people in our church who could agree with this whole list and or a list of other things like it who if they don't repent and put their faith in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of their sin, if they don't turn to Christ as their Savior and Lord in truth, they will hear our Savior say, Depart from me. I never knew you worker of lawlessness. We don't want that. And if you just heard me say that and go through that list and and maybe you got defensive in your heart and, and you started reciting in your head your own list of reasons, you're good to go. Then I very well may be talking to you today. And if that's you, I plead with you. Repent and be saved today. You might say, Pastor, I I have been here for 60 years, and I'd be embarrassed. Oh, please don't. Please don't be. This church would be fired up to know that you're saved. Right, church? If you're here today and you know that you're a sinner and God in his love sent Jesus Christ to live a perfect and sinless life and, and then died on the cross in your place, taking the penalty of sin that you deserve on himself at the cross. And by faith you've trusted in Christ's sacrifice and called in the Lord for salvation. Then praise God because everyone who calls in the name of the Lord is saved. And then church, I want to encourage you I want to encourage you as your pastor to be walking under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Every single one of us should be seeking to bear good fruit. This year, this last year, plus, it's been tough. And in a culture that tends toward consumerism and like a what am I going to get out of this kind of mentality and after a long period of time where our minds have tended toward that quarantine mindset, an inward, a kind of protected inward focus, we need to be proactive in thinking of ways on purpose, thinking of ways that we can be loving one another. And stirring one another up to love and good works. And then, do it. Do it. That verse in Hebrews 10.25 has often been used as the don't ever miss church version of the one I'm talking about. It says, uh, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Verse 24, right before that is the verse that says, let us consider, spend time thinking of ways proactively to stir up one another to love and good works. That's what verse 25 is tied to. That's what we do together. 
So often we see crazy things going on in this world, or even just in the United States, and our, our mentality is to say, wow, can you believe this? Jesus must be coming soon. The day is drawing near. And maybe it is. We're supposed to be ready all the time. Ten years ago, we were supposed to be ready. And it was right to be ready. And it's right to be ready now. And if the Lord tarries ten more years, it'll be right to be ready then. But the way we are to be ready is to be busy doing the work God's called us to. To walk that narrow pathway. And not to hunker down and get defensive and point fingers at all the people doing crazy things all the wrong way. Being critical of others and isolating ourselves. Thinking that Jesus is going to come back because, because things look like they might be getting a little tougher for Christians in our country when, when any persecution we may endure now pales in comparison to the hardships and persecutions our brothers and sisters in countries all over the world have to go through every day. That's not healthy fruit. When people call themselves Christians, mock the lost. Treat them poorly. Berate them. Even using their supposed faith in God or or Bible verses to mock other people's actions. Getting a laugh out of the fact they don't know what to do and how to think and how to live. When we get fired up, uh, more offended when the lost differ with us on social issues or political issues than we do with the fact that they're going to die and go to hell if they don't repent? Is that healthy fruit? I say no. That's diseased fruit. Church, we have been called to walk a narrow, constricted pathway. And that constriction is the will of God. The commands of our loving God and Savior, our Lord. And He has called us to love Him and seek His kingdom first. God and His kingdom are to be our priority. What this nation needs more than just different leadership is a different church. Who will love them and point them to Jesus. He has commanded us to love our neighbors ourselves. He has commanded us to make disciples of all nations. He has commanded us to consider how to stir one another to love and good works. He has commanded us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace. My fear is that there are more more people who profess to be Christians in our nation who have forgotten that the narrow gate leads to a narrow pathway. And that that way is the way, the way that leads to life. And if someone only wants a narrow gate that leads to a wide pathway, then have they entered the narrow gate at all? Christ has called on us to respond. We see in the Sermon on the Mount what it means to be a Christian. Which gate will we enter? Which path will we walk? And we know this. 
our sanctification is progressive. That we would enter that gate at all, the narrow gate, that we would walk down that narrow pathway at all, is a gift of God's grace. A gift of God's grace. And we don't walk through that gate and just perfectly start living the right way, do we? We still mess up. Uh, we still need to grow. Uh, we, we might kick ourselves sometimes and go, man, I wish I would have done that different. We agree with the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 that even when we want to walk down that narrow path, we struggle and fail. Isn't it good to know that our God is faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us of all our unrighteousness? Isn't it good to know that He has committed to complete the work that He started in us? Isn't it good to know that uh, whom God has called, he has also justified, and that whom God has called, he has also glorified, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That when we see Christ, when that day comes, we will be made to be just like him. And if you're here today and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I plead with you, be saved today. And Christians, rejoice. By the grace of God, you have entered through that narrow gate and you are walking a narrow path. And even in your stumbling, even in our stumbling, God is refining us and changing us. And one day when our Lord and Savior does return, you will be perfected. It's as good as done. And we count on God's faithfulness to do it. You will walk that path of God's will perfectly. That's good news. And as we walk that path, we will walk it for eternity with all joy and contentment, completely satisfied in Him. But until then, let's stir one another up to love and good works, looking to Jesus, not the instantaneous temporary benefits that we might want to grab in this world, but looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, as we seek to walk this narrow and this good path. Let's pray together. Lord, this, this passage um, brings a heaviness with it. And we thank you that you love us so much that you, you don't beat around the bush. You don't hide these things. You have given us the truth. God, I pray that by the, by the work of your Spirit, the truth of your Word, by your grace, that you would uh, bring these truths of, of your scripture, uh, implanting them in our hearts. Lord, weeding out the lies we may believe, the things that we've held on to dearly, that are wide path kinds of things. We pray that you would shape us and conform us to the image of Christ. That we would see this narrow path under the lordship of our Savior Jesus Christ as a wonderful path. A good path. The only right path. That we would value this more. 
than all the other things that we might value in this world. God, I do pray, Lord, if there, if there would be uh, some here, they might be 10, they might be 80. They might be believing that they're a Christian because mom and dad are. They might be believing they're a Christian because they've served for 60 years. But Lord, you know. And if they are blind to this blindness, if their hearts are hard, God, I pray that you would open their eyes and give them a new heart, uh, be making a new creation in them, give them eternal life, we pray. And may we rejoice with them. And Lord, I pray for your saints here, for this church. May we continue to grow in seeking first the kingdom of God and your righteousness. Trusting you. Knowing that all these things we might be worried about, you're going to add them to us as you see fit. You're going to take care of us as our loving Father. May we see other people in this world as souls. Not as irritations, not as ways that we can have a a good old time, but as souls who need a Savior. And may we treat them accordingly and seek ways to love them and care for them and point them to Christ. God, I pray that you would use us in this way. May we honor you and glorify you in this world, truly being salt, truly being light. And God, we thank you that while it may feel hard, where, where there will be hardships, as, as, as the Apostle Paul said, that even in those hardships, even in the midst of them, because we're looking to Jesus, we can have joy and contentment in all of it. That we'll have even more joy and contentment in suffering for the kingdom than we would be in, in, in enjoying the front porch sipping on our iced tea. Lord, give us hearts for your kingdom in this way. Use us this way for your glory. And I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.